Today's episode is our first in a series celebrating the 30th anniversary of Mage the Ascension, which debuted at Gen Con in 1993. Normally I don't do author interviews unless I think it'll illuminate gameplay or help understanding in systems, but for a few episodes this year, I'm going to be talking to some of the early creators to find out what it was like to be there at the start and what their favorite part of being in that process was. We'll be doing a few other segments to celebrate this, like Let's Read the 1E Core Rulebook, where we'll be taking some of our favorite passages from the 1E Core book and talking about them. If you have a favorite one, you'd like to record a segment on a favorite bit and submit it to the show, contact me on Discord and we'll set something up. There will also be a Discord channel for this project. Also, my reference for the Mage the Podcast M20 book of Worlds update. M20 didn't get a book of the Umbra, so we're making one. I made this reference so that we could have a unified view of the Umbra, and it has become so thorough and complete that it's turned into a publication itself. I'm christening it the first installment in my M20 series called Mage Made Hard. If this reminds you of Satoros' book, Mage Made Easy, you're right, and he thinks the name is super funny. If you would like to see a draft of this publication, it is available in the show notes. Please leave your comments if you noticed anything that I missed. And with that, on with the show, and happy 30th, Mage the Ascension. Hi, Mage fans, this is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And today, my guest, who has traveled here from the becursed year of 1993 to discuss both Mage the Ascension and the early history, I guess a little bit, of White Wolf is Harry Heckle. You may recognize the name from Hengiokai, from Beyond the Barrier, Book of Worlds, from Mage 1E core rulebook, as well as from a slew of Wraith titles. Additionally, Harry was the author for Virtual Adepts, the first tradition book, which kind of set the template for all the other ones, except for Society of Ether, which Bill Bridges did, because Bill Bridges is a majestic creature known as an F unicorn, and he just gets to prance across the landscape and do whatever he wants. Uh, Harry is joining us from his car. Thank you so much for doing this. Harry, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. My wife and daughter are actually headed off to Ireland. My daughter's an Irish dancer. And and by the way, I'm just going to say I, I, I wrote the first edition Fiona Tribe book for, for werewolf fans out there. And now I have a daughter who's an Irish dancer who's going to Worlds and Killarney. But the paradox of DC traffic was too much for me. And so we're in a parking lot having a good time. Yeah, I always thought there should be places where using Entropy 1 to get all green lights should just automatically be considered vulgar regardless kind of of the system that you use. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was just trying to get my time spheres to go back to actual 1993 and hopes the traffic would be better, but I'm not sure that would have been the case. Uh, and the problem is under 1E rules, you can't really use time for time travel that way until you get to like a revised or, or 20th anniversary edition. So uh, edition strikes again. <laughs> so uh, how did you get into RPG writing or at least get hooked up with the White Wolf crew? So it's a very interesting story, actually, I think. For me, RPGs, by the way, started with Dungeons and Dragons, played games in high school, found out there were other role-playing games, started discovering them. This was the 80s, though. And then for me, uh, I was working at a store called Dream Wizards, which still exists out in Maryland, Rockville, Maryland. I was a manager there, and there was this cool game called Vampire of the Masquerade that I saw that was written by some guys who did Ars Magica, which I recognized. I ended up buying it. And we ended up playing in my townhouse with my college buddies at all trying to figure out what we were doing with our lives after after graduating. And we started playing that very night with nobody but me having any clue what the game was about. So that was sort of how we started there. But how I got started is I had a friend who was in my gaming group who went to Dragon Con. And he was really excited about my vampire campaign that I had started up and 
uh, all these things. And he was talking about uh, everything that I did. And I was the sort of guy who I would get a, a dungeon module or a source book and I would just create the wazoo out of it. I would just make stuff up and just go beyond whatever it was or change things around and go, okay, this is really cool, but I'm going to do this. And I, I did that with a lot of game systems. And so there wasn't but so much material in the first vampire rule book that came out. Obviously, there would be a whole lot of other stuff that would come. So that's okay. But I mean, there was enough to get started and get yourself in trouble. And so I just started making stuff up when I got in trouble. And he was talking about Malkavians and, uh, specifically and ran into Daniel Greenberg, who was an author. And his brother, Andrew, was a vamp line developer. And anyway, at DragonCon, he talked to Daniel about some of my ideas about Malkavians. Well, Daniel was going to be working on some Malkavian things and was really impressed and interested. And then after my friend, who, by the way, you should never talk about your campaigns to, to writers and stuff, usually cons as a rule, but who had done that, you know, left DragonCon in Atlanta and came back home, which was D.C. That should have been the end of all of it. But. He happened to run into Daniel, this is where fate comes in, at a comic book store in D.C. because Daniel lived in Washington, D.C., and the two of them ran into each other. And Daniel was actually stuck and talked to him. And my friend was like, oh, you got to come out. You got to go to Maryland and meet my friend because I, I was living in Gaithersburg at the time. And he was like, you got to come for some reason still unknown. Daniel decided that he would go with this guy in his car and go meet me. And Daniel must have really stuck or needed some ideas or something. I'm not sure. And I, I think according to Daniel, when I talked to him about five minutes in, he was like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Okay. You know what? This is crazy. I will go. I will meet this guy. I will say hi. I will, you know, talk to him. I'll realize that this was a big mistake and then I'll leave in about 10 minutes. So Daniel came over and I got to meet him and, and we started talking and somewhere after a few pizzas and many hours later, Daniel was like, you need to be writing things. And that was, that was actually how I got started. And then the first thing that I ended up writing was actually for Werewolf. I was given an opportunity by Bill Bridges, who was the line developer at Werewolf. And they gave me a chance to just write a few things for Werewolf Player's Guide, I, I think it was. I just write a few relics and a few little bits here and there and just see what I could come up with. So I brainstormed, made a whole list. I think three of the things I out of 10 were selected. But they said, good job, well done, creative, neat, cool. And then Daniel approached me about writing Umbra the Velvet Shadow for Werewolf. And then at the same time, I was talking about DC by Night for Vampire. And then lo and behold, all of those things became reality. And I suddenly was writing um, things for White Wolf. Nice. So Werewolf Player's Guide, uh, Werewolf comes out in 92, the year before Mage. How did that roll into your, your time with Mage of the Ascension? Well, as far as Werewolf goes, I was actually a, primarily a Werewolf writer when Mage was coming out. But I had written a lot of things for Werewolf and, and was doing a bunch of work and then you know, and Mage was the next one coming. And for me, the way I got involved in Mage first was the playtesting. They said, hey, Harry, you run things. And actually, as I recall, the, the Mage rules were a little behind where they needed to be. Uh, and I'm being gentle. I got this, this Mage book of the Mage rules to playtest and run with my group and see what I could do with. And for everyone who's played Mage first edition, 
you have not played anything like the game that I received for the play test, which was a very, very, very different game and different world and a different vision of what Mage was than what eventually came out. Uh, what, what was that game like, if you remember any of it? Uh, I remember quite a bit of it. If you've ever had a philosophy course at school, at univer- a university or something, it had a lot of elements like that. And I don't mean this. It was a very intellectual game. You know, I'm going to go talk about pre-Socratic philosophers. So like Parmenides, who is a pre-Socratic guy who talked about whether anything actually moved. Because if you measure one foot and then you divide it in half, then it's six inches. And then you divide that in half and divide that in half. And you can only go half before you can go. But if you can never get to the half, then you can't actually go anywhere. So therefore, nothing is moving. And then there was Heraclitus, who like everything is motion. So take sort of that mindset of like people with these intellectual philosophies of like everything moves or nothing moves or whatever, and then build them into mages. And that was very similar in a a really quick nutshell of what was going on. It was a lot of definitely the paradigms, definitely thought being involved, but it it felt probably a little bit more like Ars Magica. Uh, If anyone's played Ars Magica out there where you, you took, you know, pieces of things and put them together to get your, your magic. So like a bit of the, the spheres were in there, but it was just a very different game as far as things go. And the systems really didn't work very well in it. Good to see nothing's changed. And so, yeah, well, that was sort of what, as I recall, it was sort of like, okay, we're having trouble making it work. You know what? Just let people make up stuff and have a good time and reward their creativity. And that was more than trying to have spells that that captured every little detail. It was more like, let's make it easier. In some ways, it was really quite a blessing that Phil Bricado came in because Phil is very narrative. And that, that is what Mage needed, very much so. And obviously, it, it worked because there are people who... Absolutely love it and still love it today. So like me and you and uh, hopefully the people listening. So (laughs) I would love to have the opportunity to thumb through kind of one of those drafts if it were ever kicking around, because one of the you kind of bring up to me what a fundamental tension in Mage is in that more so than a lot of other games, you cannot depend on the system to produce a story for you. Where in other games, they're a lot more mechanically tight. If I play Vampire Blades in the Dark, it's very clear to me how a game falls out the other end of it. I mean, I ran a bunch of V5 just out of curiosity for V5, and I'm not a vampire person, but the rules kind of directed me where to go, and a vampire story kind of fell out the other end. And on one end, you have very story-based games where you're literally directing the element of plot, but one of the things that Mage constantly calls on a storyteller to do is say, do what's good for the story. The problem is not everyone has that intuition of what what is a good story beat. It's hard to tell the difference between a setback that will cause character growth and a pratfall. So Mage has constantly kind of demanded that and never quite had the tools. I mean, that just didn't exist yet in the RPG world to kind of get you there. You had mentioned that you're you're very much a, or at least more so than most people, a, a systems person. What did it kind of feel like maybe dialing in those early D10 systems? Was that just born of having played dozens of other games or 10,000 sessions of Dungeons and Dragons? Where do you feel that kind of rules intuition came from and how do you think it affected your work? 
Well, I think it was largely part of just playing with a lot of trial and error, I would say. More of a, you know, play tester. Wow, we played that a lot. Oh, that didn't work. Or, oh, that's broken. Having played a lot of games. And then I also got some very good instruction from some people. You know, really, the thing about rules is you want the rules to do sort of what you said in most cases. You want the rules to help you tell the story. And if the rules aren't helping you tell the story, then they're not any good. And if the rules cause conflicts, okay, if we're in the middle of a scene and suddenly everyone has to get their books out and flip through them and we argue for half an hour and we forget why we were doing what we're doing, we totally break the narrative and everybody's suspension of disbelief and immersion is gone, then we kind of blew it. And to me, rules should exist to support your story and the story should exist to support fun or enjoyment for you and your group. If your group is having fun, I don't care what you do with the rules. You won. Congratulations. Okay. If you have fun and a good story, even better. But you know, if you're just a mess, you can have a great set of rules, but you know, they've got to help. And by the way, more rules can be okay. There's a game called Champions I absolutely adore that is so math-heavy and old superhero game, lots of stuff. They've, they've made it nicer, but old edition Champions, you really had to, and you still kind of did, you had to know your fractions. I mean, you had to do all sorts of things. And then there are games like Amber Diceless Role Playing, where, you know, and, and World of Darkness is emphasizing where you can actually play diceless. And if you can learn how to do those things and what works for your group and get the amount of rules you use right, then good. And that's a lot of my experience was running into rules that were not good and then realizing that these things are not good, try to make it better. And then realize that if you can't come up with rules to work, then just give people guidelines and try to help them muddle through it. I think that's a lot of it. And good groups and players and gamers, they want to tell a good story. So, you know, chances are the troop is not going to go try to blow everything to pieces, generally speaking. You know, trust them a little bit, see what they can do. So, and if they don't, then at least you get a good story and maybe you have fun. (laughs) Yeah. I think that is generous to certain tables, but I, I wonder how much of that comes from the fact that historically, if you were a gaming group, you had very much cut your teeth on some crunchy system, chances are first before anything else. And now we, we have the era where I will help friends of mine that I know from like my opera company and the first RPG they are playing is now Mage or something like that. And I don't know if Mage was designed to be anyone's first RPG, but I feel as if the pool that games are drawing from nowadays is different, I think much to the benefit of games. Because now you have games like Fiasco that in an hour and a half or two hours give you a Coen Brothers film and you don't need any prior experience. I definitely agree with that. And and really in... The early 90s, everyone was used to making a bunch of the characters rolling D20s and going in dungeons drawn on graph paper. That was what we did. That was really the entry point for almost everyone when Mage was created. And really, White Wolf, I think, did some just utterly fantastic things with the emphasis on narrative and storytelling. And that was really have enough rules that you can play, but not let them get so much in your way that you're worrying about the rules constantly so you could you know get into that world and and explore the world of darkness was there anything from that early version of mage you wish had kind of made it maybe a mechanic or a group or an idea or a theme because every time i revisit mage first edition it's slightly 
different than what I remember it last time. It is so packed with stuff. And people always remember vampires in lawn chairs or using matter to, call, to block a bullet with a flask in your chest. But uh, just the idea that you have these throwaway lines where it's like, here is one set of traditions implying that the Council of the Nine is just one among many. Or little bits where each tradition is kind of pulling one over on the rest of reality. The choristers have a religion beyond everyone else. The virtual adepts have a computer beyond everyone else. The Society of Ether has science beyond everyone else. The Akashics have martial arts beyond anything else. Is there anything that you kind of wish maybe st stuck around or, or, or never quite made it? There was a lot of good, you know, so I just talked about the how it had a lot of philosophy. There were a lot of cool concepts and different mage group. None of the traditions were in that as they are today, are were in that that set. Uh, maybe Order of Hermes was. I would have loved to see some of it taken and repackaged a little bit. And then the other thing is, I wish we'd had a little bit more time, maybe to play with the spheres and get them together a little bit more. In that first edition, they were sort of loose. Uh, but you know, again, I can't argue with the way things worked out. So, but there were some neat concepts that I would have loved to see show up in some other source books down the road, maybe. It would be uh, one of the meta plot events that was kind of introduced later in the game was the idea of Threat Null, which are kind of these dark inversions of each of the technocratic conventions. I'd be fascinated if someone kind of did this like, oh, what if there's tradition equivalents? And it turns out to just be some of the original write-ups for those groups, just like a little bit, a little bit twisted. Yeah, <laughs> I could totally see that. And again, it was very much competing philosophies. Anyway, there was some neat stuff in it. But it was also very, Paige was very dry in a lot of ways in that version. I mean, you know, there were, as I recall, spells and things you looked up and a lot of, it did feel a lot like uh, reading that version was a lot like reading very academia scholarship where we're trying to use words that no person outside of our area of expertise could possibly understand yeah. practitioners <laughs> so. and believers in benign antinatalism you're like oh yes this is this is what that i want is a, i think that was a line from that uh, <laughs> draft by the way <laughs> so the next thing you kind of got to do taking things slightly out of order is you kind of got to set the template with the virtual adepts tradition book who were the virtual adepts to you then i mean this is going out in 93 ish so I actually ended up getting added to the virtual adepts a little late. I was sort of thrown into that a bit. And but to me, you know, I was influenced by things like Tron, for example, the the movie, bulletin boards, and we had modems that beeped and then made hissing noises and cool stuff like that. You know, we were trying to figure out what computers really were going to be like. So, you know, there was a a lot of DOS programming and boot disks and all sorts of other very primitive things kind of went in. But to me, the virtual adepts kind of represented um, the hope of technology, what technology could be, the a way of exploring the imagination in the outside world rather than the inner world. You know, we all have our imagination, but now through these computers, we can create a world of imagination and thought and documented and it has a reality of its own and a shared space you know concepts like mmorpg is really to some extent what we saw some of the the digital web and some of these other things being before there were 
MMORPGs or even anything close to it. So, you know, but really I saw them as kind of explorers on a frontier of thought and mind and communication. And I found that really exciting and also sort of renegade bad guys, you know, and, and not necessarily bad guys, but, but guys who could figure out things. And if you were part of a bureaucracy somewhere or whatever, the virtual adepts might be able to shut down your corporation or learn what you were really up to. And suddenly your secrets might get out there and who knows what would happen if that goes on. And I think it's hilarious to see some of those things and what really happened in the real world during the time from that. Were there any moments where you're like, oh, we came up with that? One of my favorite things is I made a deck for somebody that was basically on a laptop computer. And I remember it could like play any TV show, any music in the world. Please remember, guys, this is the 90s. This was all magic that they could do. It could talk to other computer systems all over the world. And now I'm like, okay, yeah. My phone that I'm holding right now doing a Zoom interview can do more than my super powerful magical deck that I created in the virtual adults book. But I created that that and I got to watch my science fiction become reality or my magical science fiction become reality and then some. So it was, you know, there were some cool things like that in there. In the Book of Shadows, we get, I think, two or three different trinary decks that are that are kind of outlined. The the Alpha series, the Elite series, and the Grandmaster. Was trinary just a term you came up with, or did you have a thought behind that? Or Binary, the next thing to go to is trinary, I'm sure, is what it came from. So anyway, that that is, I'm sure, what the thinking was. It's zeros and ones everywhere in computer. Well, let's make it zero ones and something else. Something magical and cool and, I don't know, quantum, though we didn't have that term, and play with it there. Something sort of beyond what you realize. The, the secret language of the computers that the machines talk to each other and when they're all turned off and you walk out of the room. It was kind of funny writing the virtual adepts for the 20th anniversary edition. And the question then is, so what the dink is a trinary computer these days? So we have binary zero and ones. And now you have quantum, which is like, it just blows the pants off a trinary. You're, you're talking to N, N to it. So my take on it was in a binary computer, you have the user and the machine. In a trinary, you have the user, the machine, and their avatar. And that to me was the tri and trinary. Or at least that was my justification. Thanks. Woo! I got the thumbs up. From I, I'm all about that. I, I That was a thumbs up I gave it. So yeah, no, I'm all about that. Absolutely. Well played. Thank well you. Well played indeed. Totally got my blessing. So uh, uh, well, well done. And, and it was kind of interesting because at the time we had, we had the virtual depths and we had the Society of Ether. What to you kind of differentiated the two? You know, it's, it's very interesting. So one thing about the Etherites, so Bill Bridges wrote the Ether book and he wanted it as his own because he loved it. If anyone remembers Alexis Hastings, uh, Heather Curatola, her character in my mage campaign was Alexis Hastings. And she wrote Alexis Hastings stuff for Sons of Ether and worked with Bill. And uh, by the way, I married her uh, in 96. As I, I, so, You're you married, know, married to Alexis to, Hastings. Congratulations. I'm married to Alexis Hastings. So a virtual adept guy married Sons of Ether. <laughs> so uh, anyway. Mixed marriage. But, yeah. Uh, um. <laughs> all good. Sons of Ether are wacky mad science. Virtual adepts you know, are kind of grounded a little bit and sons of ether were 
not really what science is, but what we'd want science to be if we could imagine it. it all the cool, wacky, awesome, let me pull out my pocket watch and then I'll go back to 1993 because that's what it does. <laughs> I think they are alchemy and they get to make up their own rules. All of them get to make up their own rules. The virtual adepts have to sort of coexist in, in a world and, you know, they may fight over who's creating what virtual environment and how and where and magical and all this, but they sort of share. Dr. Doom can do what he wants to do in his own way and it may not work for everybody else who's coming up like Alexis or whatever, or maybe. Sons of Ether just is every bit of that cool science fiction. It's rockets to the moon. It's hollow earth. It's Jules Verne. It, and that's that's sort of what I see them, Society of Ether, being like, as opposed to, you know, virtual adepts is more, let's head off into cyberspace and see what we can explore in our interconnected matrix of, of awesomeness. Certainly, there are places that they can come together a bit, but they definitely offer work on some different rules together. Did you come up with Roger Thackeray by chance? Because we get through the history of the virtual adepts, we get like two. <laughs> so we get Dante, Roger and Demon Seed Elitna, and I guess Catherine Blass. But uh, did you have any inspirations for that or were any of those characters your work? No, none of the characters really were my work. I helped to take over that. So a lot of those characters were already built for me. So sadly, strangely enough, though my wife created a member of the Society of Ether, none of my characters actually got in, just took other characters and played with them. And that's okay. That happens. <laughs> and another thing you had mentioned in kind of talking before this is that you were kind of the other world's person, at least partially responsible for, for defining that. The other worlds in one image were impressively vague in terms of the amount of information. So just kind of a few not dots and bullet points. We get the idea that there's these, these entities called dream lords out there. We never get any information on them again, which is fine. Again, the glory of 1E. What of the other worlds were you responsible for? Like, did you come up with the notion of the high Umbra? What were you given to run with? So I will say a lot of the ideas of the Umbra, the, the guy who really came up with it, my understanding is Bill Bridges. Bill Bridges was the Umbra, the pin Umbra, things like that, and high and low. And really what I got to do is Bill gave me and Daniel Greenberg gave me an Umbra, the Velvet Shadow, this beautiful canvas in Werewolf Land and said, go draw whatever you want. And I was like, I get to do my own manual of the planes from D&D. &D. I get to go explore strange new worlds, seek out new life and new civilizations and things. Really, that's where I started. Now, I will say the Umbra in Werewolf is really, to me, more of uh, primal memories, instinctual sort of things, echoes of the world, archetypes and totems and things like that. Now, the Umbra... From a mage point of view in Book of Worlds, really the lens that I look at it as, and this is not, mage has some of what I just mentioned too, and werewolf has some of what mage has, but really more of like your imagination gone kind of wild, a, a lens of thought and just not so much everything else, but more of projecting yourself outward is a lot of what I see the difference being same things, but just that different perspective, giving it a different nuance to it as far as things go and seeking different things. You know, for werewolves, it's connecting 
to to their spirit, connecting to the past, connecting to the the natural world, which is decaying and things. And for mages, to me, it's more of finding yourself or looking in the mirror and seeing the reflection or finding some essences of, of things that are out there. And again, just very subtle, but that's, that's sort of where I saw the differences. And actually it was so much fun to get to explore things in different game systems from different points of view. And, you know, I, I worked a little with Wraith as well and Orpheus later on, you know, kind of need to see the dead wishing they could reach up to some of those things too, and try to recover themselves. What to you was the role of the Umbran Mage in, in Werewolf? The reasons why you're going there are pretty clear. And then in Revised, we have this thing where it's like, it's deadly, it's dangerous, you don't want to go there unless there's a very specific thing. And Revised spent a lot of time saying, hey, here are the, some of the reasons for it. And 1E, it was kind of a set of improvisational prompts, practically, for people to have to go on these like uh, psychodynamic journeys. What was it to you? You know, I love Doctor Strange. And I love Ditko, and and I'm going comic books here. If you read comic books about magic in the old days, there were all these weird things and science fiction and fantasy. And to me, it was the enigmas and all those other things. Really fun places to really work kind of with dreams almost for people to go out and sort of find out secrets and pieces to some extent of themselves and to some extent to just get a chance to not have to worry about paradox and not have to worry about the real and just let the magic flow and then maybe have it wash over you and get caught in the current of it. Chance to go to other planets, really, in a way, uh, well, and literally, too, sometimes, just to get to experience something really different and tell whatever story you want to tell as a storyteller and use things. Depending on the tradition and depending on the mages, focus a chance to really for them to do something with the werewolves do which is connect to something that meant something to them whether it's celestial chorus trying to find god whether you're whatever you're trying to do what is real pleasure where does it come from what is my happiness if i'm called of ecstasy coming beyond just the physical world and where can i go a little bit of 2001 a space odyssey at the end too you know we're trying to figure out what that's what i really want to do is have something like that in a game session and that's sort of the realm to do those things so as you mentioned earlier it's to you it is very much a place more of self-exploration it is a literalization of the internal state that we get to wander through Yes. And and frequently in games, you have this thing where, to some extent, a chorister does not take things necessarily on faith because to them, quite simply, they do have a direct line to the divine. There is no, it is using faith in very much a different term. The hermetic does get to truly see the city of Pymand or the virtual adept does get to step into the digital web. Kind of among those, the digital web got kind of a different treatment to it. In 1E, it says, if you ask nicely, a virtual adept will come to your house and hand you elementary VR equipment. What made the uh, the digital web kind of different to you? So the digital web actually was done before Book of Worlds. Digital web was supposed to be kind of like a bulletin board brought to light. We really saw it a lot in the concept, not so much of kind of the weird dream space, but very much a, you know, I mentioned Tron, you know, a building out of what that virtual space could look like if it had a physical side to it. And 
there's a bit of Star Wars in it, you know, uh, cantina sort of stuff and a bit of espionage, taking a bit of spy movies we wanted to have in there. And then things that cyberpunky influences and things like that. It had more of a, a vision, kind of Netrunner-ish, permeating it more than that mirror, that dream or that, you know, Wizard of Oz sort of feeling that we were trying to get elsewhere. Strangely specific question. If you don't have an idea, you're more than welcome to make something up. But one thing we in the mage public have never gotten an answer to is in the digital web, you have sectors and yours is a Victorian steampunk speakeasy. Mine, we are all hyper-intelligent sharks. What's between them? That's a really good, good question about what's between them. One thing that I tried to do, if you read through most of those worlds that are created in whatever world of darkness, but in mage, and you pay close attention, there are holes in them. There are things that are not explained. Now, did I mention earlier that I was the guy who liked to take things and just make stuff up with them and put things in? And while this is a terrible answer, I'm just going to say, I like to have places where people could try to go and explore and ask their storyteller. And that storyteller could talk to their players and figure out what the players hopefully wanted or expected or would be good for them to find. Now, for me, I kind of thought what's in between something that that probably isn't really comprehensible, something like the back door or other dimension, other universe, fourth power, the place where the computers really live or somewhere where we find out the universe is just a simulation and the big computer running the simulation perhaps but really someone's got a really good answer that they came up with for their game more power to them i don't want to take that away for me it was really like that's kind of like tearing down the walls and realizing there's something else and that's that's sort of what i would play with and for me for the virtual adapts I'm sure it has something to do with the universe as a simulation, at least from a point of view. Uh, and in all honesty, maybe what they would have found was a mage book because their universe was a simulation or a group of people sitting around a table uh, or whatever. I think that is entirely acceptable. It is interesting, the little things that at this point, Mage has produced, we, we have some 5 million Mage words. And sometimes there are remarkably simple questions we never get answers to. So kind of as a tongue-in-cheek exercise, sometimes I'd find out it's one of those things that was presumed and it just never made it into the final text. Like occasionally you'll have a rule book that just doesn't have a rule for how many XP increasing like your sword proficiency is because everyone thought everyone else did it. And in other cases, it is what you mentioned, a kind of deliberate blank and i am perfectly fine with either of those i will say some of those emissions there was a lot of product being produced very yes. rapidly at times i know that some of those were mistakes but there were some that were just gaps or things like we'll fill this in later with another source book and then unfortunately maybe that other source book never happened or someone did think there was an answer to it somewhere because someone told them oh the answer is this and then that never made it in print. And it's kind of interesting working with the virtual adepts in the digital web. You're right. Uh, digital web as a publication was kind of number two after Book of Chantries in terms of like places and setting and so on that we got. So it is interesting how baked in early it was. But a, a kind of another side effect of this is if you or I want to set a game in the Victorian era, we have a set of stereotypes that we want to do. If we want to do in the Middle Ages, we have that. That version of the digital web is so recent 
that we haven't had a century to coalesce around it. So a thing that I get new players asking about is, so what what should I pull from culturally? Do you have any recommendations that if people are looking for that spirit of the early digital web or weird bits about how the virtual adepts behave that they can look to? Is it just, as you mentioned, Hackers, Tron, and, uh, and Star Wars? Sources of inspiration for things like for the digital web. Tron certainly was. Any of the Cyberpunk Shadowrun, any of those sort of games, you know, and I don't remember exactly when everything came out, but, you know, the whole concept, any of the net running ideas that were out there floating around in novels or whatever, those are good things. I will also say for the digital web, really the Cold War had a, a quite a bit of, you know, information is valuable. There's a lot of spy stuff hidden around or that sort of feel in the digital web as far as things go. You know, those were sort of the sources of it, if you really wanted to get a, a feel for it. Now, I will say I've seen a lot of good things nowadays that are far after the digital web. That, that I mean, The Matrix, I would totally throw The Matrix movies into digital web land now, but they weren't out at the time of the digital web. But it was like, these guys are totally mage. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of ways. And there was definitely, like I said, there was a, there actually was a place, Spies Demise, uh, there was a, a place near Gen Con when it was in Milwaukee that was kind of inspirational to some of it too, where we could have drinks and things game designers would meet. It's always interesting finding out what those inspirations are, especially when you're like, oh, who is your inspiration for fourth or fifth emperor? And you're like, my fourth grade English teacher, Mr. Mr. Heaney was a jerk or something like that. And you're like, oh, okay. That's where that came from. And I will say too, Gen Con itself was probably more of an influence in digital web because you had all these gamers in all their different worlds and all their different things and their different genres and cosplayers and other, I think that had something to do with it as well. So I actually, I know because I was writing it. So any good gaming convention. <laughs> it is especially interesting now that you have two or three generations possibly going to a game convention at the same time. And one of my favorites is a kid who couldn't have been older than seven. And one of the parents picks up a Cthulhu plushie and goes, honey, do you know who this is? This is Cthulhu. And the kid's like, mom, I know who Cthulhu is. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, must find chair, must sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Not ready for future. You mentioned having kind of the mage interpretation of kind of that middle umbra. To you, do mages and werewolves have the same middle umbra just through different lenses, or are they never quite in the same space? Boy, that's a good question. The opinions of Harry Heckle are not the opinions of Paradox Interactive. They definitely see it through different lenses, but is it actually the same? I'm not sure if it really can truly be the same, because I think they both see things that the others can't. If you had somebody who was colorblind with red, green, and somebody else who had, you know, the blue sort of, you know, it's like they can kind of see it. They don't see what each other sees exactly. They can have a good conversation about it. They're definitely in the same place. But there are nuances one would pick up that the other won't. At the same token, there are things that the other will see and that, that wouldn't mean anything. So, yeah, I would say, yes, they're the same, but the perceptions are different. And really that in it makes it different. You know, we all look at the world through different lenses and they definitely see things and feel things differently. And since that, 
actually empowers them and, and allows them to interact differently. Closest comparison I can think of, you mentioned you were in your car with your dog. You and your dog are in the same world, but you are not experiencing the same reality. Like their chemical senses, they are like, yes, you could be talking about the same person and you're like, oh, the guy that was that had dark red hair and was wearing a blazer and your dog's like, oh, the guy who smelled like fresh cut timber. Right. So there's this translation and you can you can bridge it. But you could only get so far or like if you're watching a highly stylized piece of art that has very strong media conventions, a mage looking at what a jaggling is doing is going to have no idea compared to the intuitive understanding that a werewolf has in comparison of just kind of knowing in their bone when fawn does this, this is what this means. Whereas the mage has to do it analytically or with some sort of crutch to kind of make sense of it. Right. I would agree with that. And I would say different traditions experience it differently and see things through different lenses as well. And there may be things that a Society of Ether person just really doesn't see or doesn't perceive compared to the werewolf. Verbena sort of just maybe right there in the same area, depending on, on what's going on. I like the idea that everyone's going to the same place but seeing different things and interacting a little bit differently. The logical extension of that is a game that came out recently whose name escapes me where literally you're all looking at the same board but each of us is wearing different color sunglasses so certain bits of the game are literally only visible to us. The The byline for the game is it's the summer of 1990 there's nothing to do but we have to leave soon and I've never had something hit my nostalgia button so hard as the byline of that game summarizing the entirety of my childhood that <laughs> I now have to find that game. <laughs> yes, it, awesome. it was done by the same person who did Thousand Year Old Vampire. So you you also have worked on a number of game lines. You mentioned Werewolf, you've mentioned Mage, you also did a lot seemingly with, with Wraith. How did working on a bunch of games, do you think, change your view of each of them? Like, for instance, once you start playing, in my opinion, Mage is not naturally the same kind of horror game that Vampire is. And likewise, the horror of Werewolf is a little bit different. And once you kind of get see a bunch of them next to each other, you kind of go, oh, this game kind of excels at this, and this game kind of excels at this, and that has affected my storytelling. I run Mage generally as a game of urban fantasy. I run Wraith as a game of external supernatural horror, where the world is horrific, but your character experience is very hopeful. In contrast to, say, Changeling as a game, which is often a seemingly wondrous world, but at the end of the day, your character will be consumed by banality or will die. It's remarkably hard to win, as it were, in a game of Changeling. And only by having multiple games do I get to kind of look at all of them. How do you feel working on several game lines informed your thoughts about them? I think the big thing was trying to make them all unique to the game, even if you were doing the same thing over and over again. And I totally agree. Vampire the Masquerade did not feel at all like Werewolf the Apocalypse when I ran it. Did not feel like Mage the Ascension. Did not feel like Wraith the Oblivion. And I didn't play Changeling as much as I wish I had. Actually, with Changeling, I didn't really want to run it. I wanted to play in it. If anyone has a really good Changeling game and they need somebody <laughs> sometime, I did end up running it eventually. You know, when you run different games, you just have to sort of approach it differently. With And I agree with that, with a different mindset. I mean, werewolf i had a werewolf in my first vampire campaign i made a a lupine and it was very different because werewolf the apocalypse wasn't out and it was definitely a personal horror and there were people in my campaign who were like okay i'm so glad i'm a vampire because the torture that the poor werewolf npc is going through is just not werewolf was very different 
approaching it more from a the world is falling apart and the apocalypse is coming. Whereas Vampire, the horror was really personal in my campaigns. And Mage was, we kind of have these great superpowers, sort of, but we realized the world isn't at all what we thought it was, and we're trying to figure it all out. It was almost had a mystery element as well as that urban fantasy sort of thing. And uh, my mage campaigns generally had a great power comes great responsibility sort of feel to them as well. You know, yeah, there are things we can do, but should we? And then what's the cost of doing these things? And where are we going? What about the bad guys? Oh my gosh, someone's got to stop them. (laughs) I do like the idea, though, that in Werewolf and Vampire, at least as games, you have this moment of revelation where you realize reality is bigger than you thought it was. And then kind of quickly you get inured to that new thing. We were like, well, I'm a vampire now. Or, well, I'm, I'm a member of the Garu Nation now. But in Mage, it doesn't really stop. I agree completely. That's part of the fun of Mage. It's like every step you take, there's, if, if the game is, if you do the game well, there can be new peeling the layers of the onion. I think I understand reality, but, but wait, something bigger. Oh my gosh. Wait, what? Maybe these guys who are my enemies aren't my enemies and we're actually fighting the same thing just from a totally different perspective. Oh crud. What does that mean? And how do I become friends with them? even though I don't like them or want to kill them, or they tried to kill me or turn me into a serpent or, you know, throw fireballs at me. The real ascension are the friends we made along the way. I think we can agree with that. That Um, that is absolutely true. What was, if we can talk about Wraith for a second, what was that early vision of the game that you started to work with and kind of how did you, how did you feel you put your mark on it? Mark's vision was he kind of wanted a game that was really horrible. And, And I mean, horrible in that, the players would would not have any power and be very weak and then have to slowly build up over time. And he wanted it to feel not the empowering sense necessarily of mage or werewolf or even like, oh, I'm a vampire, I can do this stuff, but really fettered and shackled and, and brought down. And there was some cool stuff in his vision, but his original vision wasn't in my opinion, playable because nobody would want to do it because you have to have that fun element of it. And that's what came out when we started talking about it. You know, for me, I was originally just having people possess humans and maybe give them some abilities and powers along the way that the ghosts have, and maybe the ghosts manifest in some ways. But I really wanted to keep it sort of human-centered when I first ran it. As we talked more and as things came up, There's a whole lot with exploring the underworld and what it means to let go and just trying to find a place. And at one point, there was sort of a talk of, do race become angels eventually? Do they become demons? Are they both? Are they neither? What happens? And there's some big, giant, scary questions, uh, you know, like, you know, what does life mean? What does death mean? And stuff that you could really try to explore. Wraith was interesting. There are elements of it. Ferryman being in there is, I don't know if I came up with that or not, but I wanted that, the ferryman to be in there because I just am a Greek myth guy and I just want people to row across the river Styx no matter what. So elements of that were things that I definitely wanted to have in Wraith. Some of the the arc of redemption and things that like the movie Ghost kind of i think is a wonderful wraithy sort of thing i know that sounds really weird for a guy talking about horror to talk about patrick swayze movie 
I want to have some hope in the midst of all of it. And if you don't have hope, then you can't really have horror. You know, you want to get some of that. And I want some of that cool Amityville horror elements in it. There are things that I definitely touched in Wraith and, and moved into Wraith. But all of it was such a collective effort. You know, when you get in a room and you're really creating with people and you're working with them, it becomes very hard to go, I made that. When it was like, okay, well, wait, somebody else mentioned something. I ran with it a little bit. Then someone else refined it. And then someone else did something super cool with it later. So wait, whose idea was it? And, it, and it's weird working on modern projects where frequently you'll get an outline. and It'll be like, oh, Harry, you have 6,000 words to do on this place in this area. And someone else has 7,000 words to do on this. And you need to provide seven plot hooks where it is very easy for me to point and be like, I did that. And some things are like that where it's neatly broken down into chapters. But I imagine when you're trying trying to figure out what a game is. It's it's a good bit more free-flowing, and the, uh, the Oath Circle of the Ore is a lovely organization. What to you predated Stygia? Charon dies 3,500 years ago. Humanity had existed for a million years before that. What do you think that early underworld was like? I mean, I would probably think it was very much like a city of some sort. Uh, I look at Sumerian myths, and really, to me, it's just all going back to ancient myths and Babylon, Sumeria, at least my understanding and memory of it. It's been a little while, but I was an ancient studies major. To some extent, some of those visions were very much like life was. It was like, okay, you die, then you get your place to live in the city of the underworld, and then you you go on. So to me, I would probably go back and just make it a reflection of whatever humanity's experience in life was like. So eventually, you know, caves probably would be the earliest things. It probably starts as a deep, dark cave that you, you're seeking shelter from the, the tempests of the underworld and then slowly builds out over time to bigger things. But, you know, some sort of sanctuary, place of, of safety amidst the whirling maelstroms of the underworld. That's what I would see it as starting as. Is there a piece that you did that you feel you were most proud of? Something that you kind of look back fondly on? You're like, nice work, Harry. Well, I already mentioned, I, I, I love the fact I designed a laptop that existed, uh, that, that came to reality and then got past virtual adapts. And that actually, I know that sounds like really crazy, but that as far as Mage goes, may be one of my absolute favorite things. The fact that Digital Web got out and got done, super cool. It's really hard to pick one thing. I loved working on Umbra. That was one of my first real projects. DC by Night, the main villain there is one of my favorite characters of all time, Marcus, in that book. And I will probably always love him. I got to work on, uh, there's a book, Sothis Ascends for the New Mummy by Onyx Path. And I got to write some wonderful things in there about going out of order in your chronology, about time not flowing properly and some of that. And I really love that. That's Actually, the most recent role-playing thing I've written, it's kind of like they're all my children. It's very hard to say, oh, I, you know, I, I love you the best. I have lots of good memories of all of my role-playing experience writing. I think I have to say, first time I got to see my name in a book was probably, I was Werewolf's Player's Guide. Uh, and that was astonishing. And then when I got Umbra the Velvet Shadow, and there was a book and my name was on the front cover and it was just inside it and uh, with Daniel Greenberg, Daniel Greenberg and I co-authored it and I was just over the moon 
to see that. And then DC by night, my name is by itself. And that was also over the moon. Lots of good experiences. I'm so humbled that I got to help create this world. And so pleased and proud that so many people have gotten entertainment and had their lives been a little bit better because they got to play some game I wrote. So. And that's pretty fascinating. You mentioned Sotha's Ascends for Mummy the Curse 1E. And that came out in, what, 2015 thereabouts? Um, Something like that. Yep. Yeah. And now we're dealing with the uh, the 2E version of it. Well, eventually we will talk about Mummy the Curse just because literally every other game line is just, to me, kind of fodder for mage. Mages get to be the Spider-Man of the World of Darkness, the liminal character that gets to kind of go anywhere. They're not quite at home anywhere besides their sanctum and maybe their own home city, but they can, they can kind of get by. If someone were to tap you on the shoulder and say, Hey, we have a few more 20th anniversary texts that we can do. Is there, is there that last supplement that you would want to do or a thing that you never got to explore that you would love to, to come up with 10 or 20,000 words on maybe as part of a larger piece? I really enjoyed writing just about anything that anyone would give me a chance to write. So someone said, we're doing anything world of darkness and we'd like to do something with it i would probably say yes a thousand times yes i really wanted to write some stuff about the antarctica there is a infinite library of things somewhere in my mind and i mean literally an infinite library that i want to write up for mage sometime and put somewhere and just uh, do something with that I never got to do anything with. And then there's a whole bunch of mystic sites and places when I was working on, I really like doing little pieces about places, especially places with cool backgrounds that nobody's gone through before. Uh, I wrote some stuff about Hatin in the Soviet Union. You know, I, it'd be it'd be fun to go find a couple of neat places that would educate people and that people would go, wow, this is cool. So, you know, sort of, uh, I, I would enjoy some of that too. But but yes, I, I'm happy to write just about anything. Just let my imagination flow and have some fun and lose myself in a world. Harry, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any other parting thoughts, memory stories, or alternatively, are there any other game projects or, or, or things that you'd like to pour our audience towards? I have so many good thoughts and memories of people telling me, you know, I said earlier, you know, you're not supposed to go up to people and tell them about your campaign. You can go up to me if you ever run into me at a convention and tell me about your campaign. Because I'm at the point where I'm so happy to hear people had a good time or what they did with the things that I tried to provide out there for them. Uh, it just means the world to me. I'm so proud of the work that I got to do and so humbled by the fact I got to work with such incredible people. Again, Andrew Greenberg, Bill Bridges, Bill Bricado, fantastic experiences working with all of them. When I look back, I don't remember being a call center guy when I had a day job doing that so much or whatever. But I do remember I got to write these books and I ran into somebody the other day who was talking to me and, and she's a fellow author. She and I were in a, in a writing group. I, I, I do a lot of novels these days. She didn't know I had written role-playing games. And then I told her I'd written the Fiona Tri book. She went home and found it and got so excited. I was so happy. I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I was a Fiona. And that just made my year, I think. You know, fun stuff like that. 
these days, by the way, mostly what I'm doing is I'm writing novels. I have a co-author under the name of Jack Eckel. And strangely enough, I'm writing comedic fantasy and fractured fairy tales a lot these days. I've also done some writing uh, for Games Workshop, Grim Darkness of the Far Future. So I get cited werewolves and space wolves. I'm always looking for new projects to, to work on, things to do. So uh, and Jack Heckel is the writing team of John Peck and Harry Heckel. I know him. And, and the latest <laughs> book appears to be The Darkest Lord, the epic conclusion to Jack Heckle's whimsical fantasy series. Dark Lord Avery Stewart must join the company of the Fellowship and a frenzied the company of the Fellowship that is amazing in a frenzied war against Morgoth and the corrupt forces of Mysterium and destroy the magical artifact fueling the interworld chaos. I will include a link to uh, both that author webpage and the most recent publication in the show notes. Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. This has been Mage the Podcast, where we know the truth of what's between the realms of the digital web. A lot of cut hair and Cheeto dust that's accumulated since the Great Crash when Kibo just picked up the whole thing and shook it. Killed a lot of virtual adepts, though. This episode is made possible by Sean Gallagher, oracle of the early version of the Akashics that fought exclusively via slam poetry. Benjamin Mendelow, oracle of the early versions of the Cult of Ecstasy that was actually all about horses taking MDMA. Buck Gregory, oracle of the early dream speakers who just subdued people by telling boring stories about what they saw when they slept. Christopher Phillips, oracle of the early Euthanatos, which was mostly about looking good, wearing capes and flexing in paisley guy stewart oracle of the early celestial chorus which was mostly toured around collecting quintessence from behind praise bands josh hillerup oracle of the early order of hermes which focused more on stage magic working backwards from their initials of ooh puka g oracle of the early hollow ones which were initially hollow because someone had taken out their rich caramel interior jay widener oracle of the early sons of ether which was mostly a collection of victorian children conceived during ether frolics mikhail oracle of just being a handsome devil and the early verbena which were much more of a bed bath and beyond vibe in this kind of lemon vervain sense and the crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Early Virtual Adepts, which were mostly people who claimed to be great at things but really weren't. As well as Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Bubba the Pale One, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon, Badurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hebert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris Blake, Sinchotis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwank, Fraga Rock, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Ia Bolt, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jake Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, JoLynn Andes, Lawson and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick Mulder, Patrick McNamara, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Starfish, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Conley, and William Martin. Thank you for your support. Our executive producer shout out this week is to Ben Bendelow, who seems to have a fondness for nice dice. Perhaps the oldest known dice were excavated as part of a backgammon-like game set that was found in the Burt Sindhi, the name for an archaeological site in southeastern Iran, estimated from between 2800 and 2500 BCE. Bone dice from Scarbray, Scotland, have been dated from between 3100 to 2400 BCE, and excavations from the graves of Mohenjo-Daro, an Indus Valley civilization settlement, unearthed terracotta dice dating from 2500 to 1900 BCE including at least one die whose opposing sides all added up to seven, as is the case with modern dice. Finally, in investigating this little bit, I found a serpentinite D20 or icosahedron from Ptolemaic Egypt, and boy howdy, does it look badass. It would not look out of place in a current 2D20 game, even though it's over 2,200 years old. Ben, thanks for your support. Rather listen on YouTube, search for Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.